This podcast is brought to you by Squarespace, the all-in-one platform for entrepreneurs to stand out and succeed online. And I know this personally as I use Squarespace for my website and find it so easy to use with plenty of great templates to choose from to make it look super engaging and professional, even for a technophobe like me. And if you need any more encouragement, here are some of the amazing things Squarespace offer. You can start a completely personalised website with the new guided design system, Squarespace Blueprint AI. You can also sell your products and services with an online store. From hand-knitted decorations to digital content or services, Squarespace has the tools you need to start selling online. Squarespace supports entrepreneurship by helping you to easily manage your clients and invoices in one streamlined workflow. Head to squarespace.com forward slash fail 10. That's fail 1010 for a free trial. And when you're ready to launch, use offer code fail 10 to save 10% off your first purchase of a website or domain. Hello and welcome to How to Fail with me, author and broadcaster Elizabeth Day. This is the podcast where we flip the traditional interview format on its head, celebrating failure rather than success. Because what we learn from the former is often far more important than anything that comes from the latter. It's how we respond to failure that defines our character and helps us grow. Every episode, I ask a very special guest to discuss three failures and how they emerged on the other side to be the person we see today. Before we get into my interview with Mel B, I'm excited to tell you that you can join me afterwards at Failing With Friends, my subscriber series, where I continue my conversation with her. This week, Melanie and I go through failures to communicate with flirty friends and building confidence when getting back to work after having kids. I can't wait for you to join us. And I'd love to hear from you. If you'd like to get in touch, follow the link in the podcast notes. When Melanie Brown was 18, her mum showed her an advert from the stage newspaper asking for streetwise, outgoing, ambitious, dedicated girls to audition for an all-female pop act. She answered the advert and the rest is history. The Spice Girls became the best-selling female pop group of all time, shifting over 100 million records worldwide and launching the girl power movement. Mel B, or Scary Spice as she became known, went on to forge a solo career and then established herself as a TV personality and talent show judge. She came second in Dancing with the Stars in 2007, judged the UK X Factor and has just announced her return to America's Got Talent. But it's her personal life that over recent years has made headlines. In her 2018 memoir, Brutally Honest, recently re-released with extra chapters, she revealed her second marriage had been emotionally and physically abusive. Her bravery in speaking openly about the 10 years of coercive control she experienced has been a revelation for many other survivors and has done much to raise public awareness of the issue. She is now a patron of the domestic violence charity Women's Aid and has been awarded an MBE for her work. Silence and secrecy just add to our burdens, Brown writes. It's hard when you are proud, when you are frightened, when there are expectations on you to not rock the boat, but we need to be able to say, I'm in trouble, 
I need help. Melanie Brown, welcome to How to Fail. God, I thought I haven't got any words now. I was like, wow, (laughs) she's talking about me? Yes, she is. That's you and what an incredible person you are. I'm grateful to you for so many reasons. I'm grateful to you for being a Spice Girl and for introducing the teenage me to girl power. I'm grateful to you for writing this astonishing memoir. I, I can't even imagine the courage it took. And... I have not experienced the depths of what you lived through, but I do have experience of coercive control. And I know how difficult it is to put words to it. Yeah. And even the word coercive control, it was so hard for me to wrap my head around what does that mean? I'm a bit dyslexic. So I was like, I can't even read that properly. (laughs) But then when I found out it became the law in 2015 and you can actually, you you know, file a complaint against your abuser and hopefully it will see the light of day. I was like, right, we are moving in the right direction. Mm. But that was 2015 and I was still in my then 10 year, very abusive marriage, which when I when I talk about it, I didn't realise there was such an epidemic going on. I thought bringing this book out in 2018 was going to end my career because for a start, nobody wanted to publish it because the topic was too, like, down and dirty and gritty and tabooish. And I actually wanted to pull it before it even got released. And it was only because my daughter, who was then gosh, 19, and Louisa will help me write write the book. We're like, well, just think about it. If, if you're going to be talking about this, maybe you can help somebody else. So by releasing this book, you could be helping a lot of other people. And I was like, right, if, if it's for other people, yes. But that book was for me because I didn't understand what had gone on in those 10 years. I knew it wasn't right. I knew it, I knew it left me fried, as in I was living on um, flight or fight. Mm. I knew because of the obvious bruises. And and then when I left, I was financially abused. And the reason why I've, I've re-released it with three new extra chapters, because in between 2018 and 2024, a lot has happened. You know, everybody thinks when you leave an abusive relationship, well, well done for getting out for a start because not all of us survive it. You don't realise then you have to start a new journey, which is putting your you as a person and your life and your kids and amending relationships with people that have been isolated from you. You have to work on that. Mm. And that's not easy. It's not easy staying in an abusive relationship, clearly, but it's also not easy coming out of it and I wanted to be able to show survivors like me that you can do it and it is going to be up and down but this is the warning signs and and hopefully a bit of a guide on how to deal with it because you are left traumatized and I'm a spice girl and I shout about girl power yet I was in 2018 girl powerless thinking what where have the last 10 years gone why has this person got so much control I can't even leave if I want to leave so it's been a bit of a roller coaster. One of the things that I saw on your Instagram recently is that you have been able to buy a house. <laughs> I and know. That, that has been something because you left that marriage with $936 in your bank account, I think yeah. your book said. With nothing. With nothing. No and house, you... no properties, no cars, no furniture, no credit card, no nothing. So I had to move back in into my mum's house. She's got a little bungalow in Leeds. So I was doing Wembley Stadium with the Spice Girls in 2019, performing in front of thousands of people in my element back with my girls and then going home to Leeds in my mum's spare bedroom with my kids and my dog, going, this is my life. And I'm, 
I love it now because I know what I'm coming home to, my mum and my dogs, mm. and it's not my house and I'm going to have to start from scratch. Where do I start? Mm. You know, because I, I doubted myself. I had no confidence. Luckily, the Spice Girls talk came around at the perfect time. But what, what led me to that place was, unfortunately, if it wasn't for my dad dying, I don't know if I would have left that marriage because I didn't have the strength to do it. I tried to do it six or seven times within those 10 years, but I always got pulled back, whether it be through blackmail or the fact that I can't leave without my kids. So I did try. And it wasn't until my dad died, him taking his last breath, did I promise my dad in Leeds, because he died in Leeds. I said, when I get back to LA, I'm going to leave that abuser. And he took his last breath. So I was like, well, I don't even know if I would have had the strength to do it myself. My dad gave me that strength. And now I'm giving myself strength through speaking to other survivors, from being involved in women's aid, being patron, and being able to educate not just myself, but kids mm. about what the warning signs look like and oh, I get to speak in parliament and it's something that is you know every every time I do talk about it it does still take me back there but I think well you have to talk about it because it's an epidemic that's going nowhere still one woman a week gets killed by their partner in this country it's worse in America so it's not going anywhere unless we not just talk about it, but we do something about it. We rebuild the justice system to be more supportive, even just to know that you you are being abused, because I didn't know how badly abused I had been. Obviously, there's the physical side of it, but the emotional side and the trauma. And thank God in this country, we have stature of, of limitations. So there's no time frame on when you can report that. In the States, you have three years. And if you're not, ready to report it in three years, that time is gone. Because that's one of the things that really strikes me as so courageous. Writing this book, were you scared about putting that out there and your ex reading it and being in touch? Uh, well, he's in touch anyway because an abuser on some levels don't stop and especially when you have a child with them, which I do. I wasn't scared for me necessarily I was scared that I wasn't going to be able to provide for my family anymore because I was lying for 10 years. I was yeah. lying to my co-workers. I was lying to the Spice Girls. I was lying to Simon Cowell because my work was my saviour because that was the one place where he couldn't get me. But when I went home, it was a different story. Yet I was so ashamed and I felt riddled with guilt that how can I? Nobody's going to believe me. I haven't been to the doctors because I'm too scared to even tell the doctor because... I, I can cover the bruises, I can cover it up with makeup and, you know, I'm girl power, I can't let the, the side down. But it was almost like a relief to get my story out, but yeah. also terrifying at the same time. And what came back at me was probably, for me, even more terrifying than my career being ended. It was the fact that I was believed Yes. It's true then. I, I know I have been abused. It's, it's such a psychological yeah, thing. Yeah, how interesting. And then yeah. when I went to my first refuge in Leeds as patron of, of, of Women's Aid, I sat with these women and I just felt so at home because I don't know if you know much about abuse, but basically abusers do the same thing at the same time. 
no matter who they're they're abusing, they come in like Mr. Wonderful or Mrs. Wonderful and you can't believe your eyes that this person is just everything and more that you've ever wished for. You are just in shock and you are love-bombed. You are just crazy head over heels. And, you know, I, I was saying the other day, it's not like you wake up and go, oh, I think I'm going to date an abuser. No, but what an abuser does is they come find you, so they make sure that you are going to date them. And I just had Angel... So I was very vulnerable. Yeah, and Angel is your daughter with Eddie Murphy, who you That's describe right. in Briefly Honest as the love of your life. And I think you do such a beautiful job of explaining yeah. that. Well, we, love me affair. and Eddie went through a beautiful love affair, yeah. but then Angel was born and there was things that were said on his part and my part. It became a media frenzy. And I was adamant, listen, you have denied that you're the father. I mean, it goes on and on and on, but basic, basically Read Angel was made yeah. with love. Yeah. And... Eddie is very much part of Angel's life and that that is happy in that respect. You said in an interview in 2023 that you wouldn't call the police. Is that still the case? No, because I'm now working alongside okay. the police, yeah. actually. <laughs> and they have fully taken it on board that okay. when they get called out to a domestic violence situation, that, that they're now going to be, they're now going to have themselves educated because if you turn up, I mean, the police have said that they turn up at a domestic violence situation. And so, sometimes the abuser is so skilled that the abuser ends up not being the one that gets taken away in handcuffs. Yeah. And because the the survivor is so embarrassed and so worried about what's going to happen when that door slams, that she or he will do anything just to make it go away when the initial thought is, this person's going to kill me. Horrendous. And we will talk more about it. Before we get on to your failures... I hope you'll indulge me by answering a couple of questions about the Spice Girls. Of course I will. It's my favourite <laughs> topic. You, because um, I was telling you before we started recording that you're my third Spice Girl. My ambition is to get all five of you. So if you could put in a good word. So who do you have left? You have I've got Victoria, Victoria. and Emma. Emma. And I did actually right. sit next to Victoria at a lunch and she said she'd come on the podcast. Well, then you have to hold her to it. And when trying. I see her next, I'll okay, tell her. Can you? I will. And I'll tell you, it's very de decadent in here, so she'll love yes, it. Yes, thank you. Um, loved her. Love you all. But you were so formative for so many women like me. And it's it's so weird now to think of you as women, but you are, you've all aged in this really <laughs> extraordinary, powerful... You haven't aged a job, like, oh, to look I at. But I still wear the same thing. For anyone listening to this podcast, rather than watching on YouTube, you are wearing amazing silver boots and, like, this fur, that fake really fur jacket. Yeah. Do you think that the five of you have changed fundamentally as characters as you've grown older? Or do you think you're still <laughs> the same? I think we're still the same. And I just want to be clear, when those names got given to us, it, it, it was by, like, I think it was a, a lazy journalist from some teeny bopper magazine and he couldn't be bothered to remember our full swear. names. Yeah. <laughs> so he was like, well, that one looks a bit scary because she's already snatched my notes off her and she's got all me and I've got all this crazy hair and I've always been, uh, I've got leopard print nails. So he just named us off the rack like that and we were all like, oh God, I quite like my name. It's funny because to this day, Emma loves pink and if she can have her way, she'd put her hair in ponytails. Melcy will never get out of a tracksuit <laughs> and she always has her hair in a ponytail. Victoria's very sleek and elegant. Jerry, she's gone through a bit of a change, but she's still that vivacious Union Jack girl underneath her being the lady of the manor, let me tell you. <laughs> so we're all exactly the same, which is lovely considering we started when we were 17, 18, 19 and we're now 48, 49, 50. <laughs> Mm. How do you feel about Scary Spice now, though? Because I feel like 
you wouldn't be called that now because... Well, I think now a bit too politically correct. I've calmed down in these last few years. Before, if you were to interview me, I'd be like, show me your questions. <laughs> I'd be the protector of the group that comes in there and go, hold on a minute. Yeah. And that can be seen as maybe being a bit too northern or maybe being a bit too feisty or scary. So that name was given and I love it just for the plain fact that I, I'm a bit scary and I've got larger than large hair, <laughs> larger than life. Yeah. And that's just me. Well, in this day and age, somebody would have taken offence by that, but I don't take offence by it. Mm. Whether you're black, white, mixed, there's a bit of scary in all of us. We're living in an era of information overload. We've more knowledge than ever before. But what do we do with it all? Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organise and rediscover the joy of play. It's a workspace designed not just for making progress, but for getting inspired. Notion is the AI-powered workspace where the everyday takes care of itself. Meetings have summaries, Docs find themselves and every question has an answer because Notion AI turns knowledge into action. And I know that myself because I once asked it to write an introduction for a How to Fail episode. And I have to say, it was so helpful and so convincing. Try Notion for free when you go to notion.com forward slash fail. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com forward slash fail fail and start turning ideas into action. And when you use our link, you're supporting our show. Notion.com forward slash fail. I'm Rachel Martin. After hosting Morning Edition for years, I know that the news can wear you down. So we made a new podcast called Wild Card, where a special deck of cards and a whole bunch of fascinating guests help us sort out what makes life meaningful. It's part game show, part existential deep dive, and it is seriously fun. Join me on Wildcard wherever you get your podcasts. Only from NPR. Love that. Let's get on to your first failure because it's sort of linked to what we've just been discussing, which is a failed audition for being a Von Trapp child in a production <laughs> of The Sound of Music. <laughs> Money. Yeah, I remember this very, very well. I got raised in a household. My dad's black from the West Indies, from Nevis. My mum's white, born and raised up north in Leeds. Um, so they're a mixed couple, which back in those days, there was a lot of stigma attached to that. There was a lot of NF, National Fronts, for example. My mum used to have to hand me to my dad on the bus so that he wouldn't, wouldn't get beaten up for being black and black with a white woman. So I got brought up with a very, a very even outlook I'm not black, I'm not white, I'm mixed. And I love that because I had friends before at school that were mixed and I couldn't understand why why they just call themselves black or just call themselves just white. I'd be like, yeah, but you're mixed. That's your mum and your dad. You've got the best of both worlds. Just quickly, what do you think of the term biracial? I don't get it. Okay. <laughs> I don't get it and I don't appreciate it. Good to know. Yeah. Because some people hate being called mixed. It used to really annoy me that when I used to fill out the passport form, it would be black, white or other. Now it's black, white, mixed with this, mixed with that, this and that. And I think, no, I'm just mixed. And I'm proud of that. So my mother got me into dance class. It was like 10p for me to go for an hour 
I think it was like three times a week. So, and because I had lots of energy, my mum was like, oh God, give me a break. She'd come on from school. She'd done her homework. I'll put her in dance class down the street. So I became obsessed with just performing. And so there was an audition that a few of my friends were going to, and it was for the Von Trapp family. And my mum, in a very, very mum way, tried to explain, you know, you're not going to get it because you're not white with blonde hair and blue eyes. Not that she said that. And I blocked that out anyway. I was like, no, it's an audition because once they see me, they're going to they're gonna want me to be part of the stage performance. Finally, she got in the car and drove me and still on the journey there, she's like, Melanie, are you sure you want to do this? Because, you know, and I was like, I am adamant. I am going to go to that audition. I'm going to nail it and I'm going to get the job. Anyway, I didn't get the job <laughs> because it was far easier back in those days to say, oh, you two this, you two that. Now we, we can't be as direct and, and rightly so. But that just goes to show that even though I knew it deep down, I didn't care. I still wanted to make sure that I went there so they could see me perform regardless of my colour. So many things strike me about this story. One is your incredible work ethic, and that's something that I feel like you've always had. Yeah, my mum and dad had that. You will just prove yourself. Yeah. Again and again and again. Yeah. Where do you think that work ethic came from for your mum and your dad? Different places, I imagine. Like well, my dad came to England, I think, when he was, was he nine? His grandmother looked after him in Nevis, and that, and that was quite common back in those days. So when he came over, he didn't really know his parents, didn't, didn't really fit in in school. So he learned how to weld copper, because back in those days, if you learn a trade, you're set for life, really. You, you'll always have a job. So I was raised with my dad doing one week of morning shifts, one week of afternoon shifts, one week of night shifts. And it was a routine. And my dad never missed a day, no matter hail, rain or snow. And he used to, he used to ride his bike to work. My mum took on an extra job because of the 10 a week dance classes and stuff like that and costumes that she would hand make. So I've always known if you, you, you've got to rely on yourself, you can't rely on anybody else, you've got to make your own money. Mm. The other thing that strikes me about it is that you do not complain. No. <laughs> you get on with it. And yeah. you don't moan. No. Which is which is many things. It's 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 quite northern, just to like generalise horribly. I was say, I think it is quite yeah. northern. It's quite showbiz, like the show must go on. I don't and know, you, there's some celebrities that moan about everything. <laughs> yes, you're not one of them. I mean, it's two schools. <laughs> Today I'm not. Yeah. <laughs> um, who are they? Name them. No, no I can't. <laughs> Jerry Halliwell. No, I'm joking. <laughs> but... There are moments in Brucey Honest where you do talk about the fact that the National Front was a presence, that you got yeah. you got called horrible names at school. Yeah. You did get bullied, but what was your response? Well, my mum and dad used to say for a start, fight your own battles, even though you've been chased all the way from school to the house, which was, God, about a good 25-minute run. Because back then they didn't know what to call me. Did they call me half? breed or they call me the n-word wow. and I'd be like I'm mixed and then I'd run <laughs> run wow. away because I was trying to get me but I fought my own battles so when you got rejected for the Von Trapp family I, mean, I just went whatever that's their loss but I was inside I was crushed but <laughs> I went to a lot of auditions and I'm thankful for that time because literally at an audition back in those days you'd get told no too thin too fat too dark too light it'd be that brutal so you'd go oh Okay then. Well, I'm not going to have an eating disorder because I like my booty. I'm just going to go to another audition. Those rejections taught you a lot about resilience. Yeah, yeah. I think that's you. If you ask anybody from back in those days when they were auditioning, 
they would all have a, like rhino skin, hard skin. It is a northern thing. You just pick yourself up and you just keep going. Mm. Were the other Spice Girls like that? Had they Mel had similar, C. Yeah. Mel C very much. I think we all were in our own individual ways because we were like the rejects <laughs> yeah. out of all of our different groups of friends. So coming together... You know, we that's why we were so strong and we felt such a connection because we were all not hard done by, but we didn't really fit in anywhere. But yet we fitted together, even though we were, we were all completely different looking and from completely different backgrounds, really. But I mean, when I think about it, Jerry's mum, I mean, she she was a cleaner. Her dad was a car salesman. Victoria's slightly different because she got driven to school in a Rolls Royce, <laughs> but she still had to work hard. You know, Mel C, single parent, got re- got brought up in Liverpool. So we've all had our, like, not perfect family lives, if you want to call it that. And you became your chosen family in a way. Oh, for 100%. Each other. Yeah. yeah. And we went through something so special that only the five of us really can know what that feels like. Because to have such a whirlwind and have so many doors closed like, like in our face, girl bands are not going to work. We're like, well, why not? Well, surrounded by boy bands, right? We get it. But why Why isn't this going to work? So we're going to knock on another door and another door and another door until, until we find somebody that believed in us. You know, there are so many incredible Spice Girls tracks, but my personal favourite is Holler, which I think oh, is yeah, quite I underrated. <laughs> I loved it. How we used to write is we'd all come in with some kind of a topic or a theme, but it was always driven by... One of our situations or the fact that, you know, we didn't want to be picked on anymore. So we have to make sure it's clear that we are girls supporting girls Mm. and not where it goes too much into the fantasy world. It's genuinely us five because we really like each other. Yes, that's so great. And you're also so good about putting out into the universe the fact that you want a Spice Girls reunion. I always say it and it will. Okay, good. It will. It will. No, we are actually in talks, all five of us. I can't say what for. (laughs) Do you have a Spice Girls (laughs) WhatsApp group? Yeah. What's it called? Well, there was one that was just the three of us, and it was just the four of us, and now it's the five of us. Oh, you're back together. That's so great. <laughs> yeah, when one leaves, it's like, uh-oh, what's gone on? Yeah. <laughs> what, does sometimes someone just leave the group and yeah, they don't say anything? More often than not, it's me, because I'm getting told off, why have you said <laughs> that I'm going to do your wedding dress? Because you are, Victoria. <laughs> and then so I'll just think, oh, bugger, oh I'm just going to leave, let them all ca- calm down for a minute, and then I'll rejoin and go, sorry, but not really. That's amazing. So like just, childish with each other. It will just say like really Melby childish. left the group. Yeah. <laughs> so going back to your childhood, now that idea of resilience and work served you very well in certain respects. You left home at 16 and you became a dancer in Blackpool. But it wasn't without... But my mum was the one that encouraged me to do that because I think my mum knew that I just loved it so much. And I think she wanted to make sure that I found something that not only was I good at, but I enjoyed. Mm. And then my dad would use it against me. So if I didn't do well in my grades, then I wouldn't be able to go to dance class that week. So it worked mm. It worked for everyone. But your dad, as much as you love him still, and as much as he's this like extraordinary spiritual presence in your life now, mm-hmm. there were some difficult times. Yeah, my dad is ridiculously strict and because we were living with not very much money this is how strict my dad was but it's actually funny when I think about it now like sports day would be coming up my dad took it that seriously he'd, he'd train me he'd go right you're gonna run around this track and I'm glad that he pushed me I mean nowadays it would be called oh you you've got a really pushy parent but my dad taught me resilience and taught me strength 
and that if you believe in yourself, you you can do it. And as stupid as, you know, winning the sports day 500 metres is like, yes. And I was like, yes. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. it gives you a sense of worth as well. And as well, it's what people wouldn't, it's because I was this little like stickly thing, you know, but I was a powerhouse because I knew not only would it make my dad happy, I, I just loved that feeling of failing but then winning. Maybe I didn't win that race, but I'm going to win the other race. All failure is data acquisition, I always think. Like every mistake, <laughs> yeah. every loss, you can learn something from it. Well, the funny thing is that when you, when you should say that, so I was having a bit of a tiff with Phoenix, who's 24, and she, she said something along the lines of, well, you can't talk. And she was being quite rude. She was like three different marriages by three different baby daddies. And I went, hmm, at least I never gave up the belief in love. Yes. Yeah. And I never did. I Un never Clearly, I never did. Unquenchable spirit. Yeah. And you're engaged now to Rory, yes. who sounds wonderful and calm and supportive and, and kind. kind. And was a friend for many years. Well, my, my cousin's best friend. So he was already part of my family, which meant there was already that foundation of trust and safety, which when you leave an abusive relationship, you don't trust anyone. You don't even trust yourself. You don't even trust your own opinions. That can take years to build back up. I'm so happy for you, Melanie. Me you too. Really deserve I don't think that. I think Rory's like relieved. He's like, finally she said yes after all these years of me going, I'm here. I wanted to talk about your relationship with your dad, Martin, because it leads us on to your second failure in a way. And your second failure is your first marriage. Yes. It was so important to you to try and make it work. Yeah. Why was it that important? Well, number one, I was brought up in an era where you don't get divorced. And also living in Leeds, seeing all my friends marry their childhood yeah. sweetheart and then live in a, the same back-to-back -back house on the same street as their mum and dad, and they're still together for years no matter what. So, so that, to me, it is unbreakable. You can't then go back and go, well, it just didn't work. To my dad, that was like, well, you make it work. And I remember when my dad walked me down the aisle to... This is Phoenix's dad I'm talking about. So this is like 24 years ago. How I old said, were you? I was I was 24. Yeah. Oh my God, Sammy, Phoenix better not be getting married anytime soon. <laughs> I'm sure she'd tell you. I'll go, well, that's yeah. what happened to me. See? <laughs> so as the church door was opening, I was like, Dad, you meant to say to me, you don't have to go through with this. And he looked at me and he said, it's too bloody late now. Everybody's waiting. You, we're going. Because <laughs> I'd already made up my mind. I'd already made up my mind, but I was I was so young and so naive. And I'd come from a spice bubble. Yeah. You know, the, pers the first person I married was my backing dancer. Before Britney Spears, before J-Lo did it, I did it. Because I thought, well, he must love me. You know, he's my backup dancer that looks similar to me. Yes. <laughs> and I didn't realise that I was really naive and I was highly embarrassed to have it not work, but I stuck at it and it got to a point where it was I couldn't be in it any longer. I could not. What do you think your early relationship with your dad taught you subconsciously about your relationship with men romantically? God, that is complexed. You see, my dad was a very sergeant major, strong figure, but yet he would do all the shopping and all the cooking. So imagine when I'm a teenager, I'm just starting my period and my sister who's five years younger than me, I'm trying to sneak in the pads or whatever into the shopping basket and my sister's like... <gasps> 
dad, Melanie's put them in the basket. I want some of those. And I was like, oh my God, oh my God. <laughs> so my dad was very, wow. in somewhat soft and relatable, but you don't break down, you don't cry, you just get on with it and it'll make you a stronger, better person. Whereas my mum was emotional, but very quiet and very shy. Like you could push in front of my mum in a, in a queue and she wouldn't say anything. Whereas I'd be like, excuse me, there's somebody in front of you and you need to back off. Mm. My dad taught me all about the morally correct stuff. There's no grey. It's either this way or that way. There's no in-between. And yeah, I was the one that was the in-between of the black and white in a weird yes. way. In, yeah, but everywhere. As a teenager, your relationship became a little bit more distant. Yeah. Because he struggled to understand you, I think. Yeah. Well, it wasn't just that. I think because I was developing into this very vivacious, loud, opinionated, very over-the-top, hyperactive woman. He was like, my God. I don't think he knew how to not even rein it in. He just didn't know how to handle it. And my dad, don't forget, has come from a very, you know, you respect your elders, you don't speak back, he's grandmother raised him so he was surrounded by strong women we don't complain we get on with it and if I say something then that's the way that's the way it is where I would be like well why and why is that and why can't I do that I wanted a reason and I wanted to understand everything in like to the last detail I think that drove well I think I know it drove my mum and dad crazy and then when they had my sister and she was all calm, first of all, they thought that there was something a bit off with me because I was always into everything. And then my sister came along. They were like, is this the normal child? Because <laughs> she's really quiet and she happily plays by herself, whereas I was a handful. And now when I read about like suicide amongst teenagers, I was that statistic where I didn't think anybody really understood me, but I understood myself. You write in the book about an attempted overdose when you yeah. were 14. Yeah. So was that in that period of time when you felt like you didn't quite fit in in didn't, your own family? Didn't fit in. Because my parents were not very... They didn't talk about feelings or emotions. It wasn't that we couldn't talk about it, but when it was spoken about, it was never resolved. I didn't get enough guidance in that way. They, it was like they gave me the foundation to be free and confident as me, but then that was as far as it is. So your first marriage, what do you think, looking back, it taught you that particular failure? I loved being a dancer. I still love being a dancer to this day. But then to just settle for the first person that gives you attention and not really understand that actually the attention that is given you is because he's your backing dancer and he wants your money and wants to get you as pregnant as quick as possible. I, that didn't factor in. I was still naive and still very, very young. It's so interesting to me that there you are, a Spice Girl, globally recognised person, incredibly successful. And at the same time, that coexists with Melanie Brown from Leeds, once yeah. you settle down like her mates have. Yeah, you still want to be part of the pack. And as, as well, we were in a whirlwind. You know, we were travelling the world. I'd barely even been on a plane, let alone visited America you know, and sitting in a posh hotel and I was doing it with my four friends and we got a number one in 37 different countries all at once, our first number one. So it was like, whoa! But then it seemed like a whirlwind, but then the eye of the storm was really calm, but then you'd go back to Leeds 
And then my friends would be saying, oh, you, you think you're posh, do you? Because my accent had gone down a bit, which I don't think it has, actually. I was still finding myself. You know, there's still a lot of things that I wanted to see and learn. And little did I know, boy, would I learn a lot. So I am also divorced. So I had a failed first marriage. And when that marriage imploded... I think it made me realise for the first time, like how much what I thought I had wanted yeah. wasn't actually me. It was what society yeah, told exactly. my family. Like, yeah. yeah. And it took me a really long time to understand myself. Yeah. And I think that's often the case for women. Yeah. And I, it's taken me like another 20 years to find out who I am. Yeah. So, but that's a beautiful thing because then I think, you know, when you're in your 40s, you can go, oh, I've lived a life, but oh my God, I really know myself now. Yes. And I've been so hard on myself and I put myself through this. I actually really like myself and I really like my company. But now I really appreciate what I've learned, good, bad and indifferent. And even if it has felt horrendously bad at the time, which it did for 10 years, I'm using that in so much, so much of a positive way. Yes, it's your purpose. Yeah. And there's nothing better than being in alignment with your purpose. Oh, because for so long I wasn't. I was shouting girl power and I was completely girl powerless. So that was your first marriage. Yeah. And in the book you also say that you went for emotionally unavailable men. Yeah. Because my dad was unemotionally available. And, and I know it's quite... Oh, I mean, we, we do blame a lot on our parents but I'm really thinking well we shouldn't because at some point we have to take responsibility for ourselves I agree but they are the example you know and I didn't really see my mum and dad hug or do date night or be emotional or that much it was like just get on with it for a really long time I thought emotional unavailability was passion like will they won't they will they be there or won't they but they're saying this thing but they're acting differently oh how interesting yeah and now I'm lucky enough to be married again and and with Justin I understand that safety is the most oh. romantic thing of all 100% and I think that's what I, I was always searching for and thinking oh, they are going to give it to me or oh, they will change if I just give a bit more of this or do that oh it's all just bollocks isn't it it is if somebody doesn't make you feel safe that's one of the red flags or you get that feeling in your tummy where you, you're a little bit scared of them yes not in a good way leave Totally. I actually had this conversation once with a friend and she said, when you get to the point where you're thinking of recording an argument on your voice memo, yes. app, that's a red flag. Or taking a picture of something just to know that it did happen. Yes. And I know that you know that more than most. And I want to preface this whole conversation around your third failure by saying how sorry I am you went through that and how mm. grateful I am for your honesty and your courage in talking about it. Oh, thank you. That means a lot. It's thank incredible you. what you do. And your your third failure is your second marriage and yeah. being in this abusive, coercive relationship. Yeah. So you've spoken a bit about how you got into it and what happened. And it was off the back of this very intense love affair with Eddie Murphy and yeah. then feeling a bit... Like he'd said something that he didn't mean in the heat of the moment. And yeah. and it was almost like you wanted to prove that you were lovable. Is that right? Yeah. Not just that. I wanted to, he'd said something wrong. I wanted him to make sure he, he was going to say it right. Because I don't believe that you can just like fluff over that. If you've publicly embarrassed me and you're sorry, well, then you have to now go rectify it. So he had been caught on the hot by a reporter, a TV reporter, 
you had sorry I like, left him I sound like such a stalker but it's just because <laughs> I love your book so much that I know every detail so basically you had flown to Leeds because you are very independent and Eddie yeah. wanted you to move in together and you yeah. were like, actually just need some time to think and he thought you'd abandoned him you left him yeah and in that time even though you hadn't you flew back a few days later yeah and he called my mum of all people and in that time a TV reporter said oh Melanie's pregnant and he said something like well she'll have to prove paternity yeah which he didn't mean because he knew that he was the dad well I always say well if you didn't mean it then you're gonna have to mean it in another way in a nicer way which I then made him get a DNA test which he said he didn't want to do because he knows it was mine and ours it's something other so I said well you're gonna have to because I'm not I'm already pregnant and I'm going through uh, um, supermarket shopping and people are looking at me sideways I said I didn't bring this on you did because we had a very private relationship and it was beautiful but then that happened and then it turned it sour for a little bit but but then it kind of made itself up but I wasn't going to go back to that Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating all the must not take yourself too seriously and 6-1 since that matters And what do I even say other than, hey? (sighs) Well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Do you have a question about all things love, dating, sex, and relationships? Maybe you're happy in a relationship and want to hear other people's nightmare dating experiences. La 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 Let Me Explain is a qualified social worker and sex and relationships educator. And on her podcast, It's Not You, It's Them, But It Might Be You, La La answers listeners' questions around love, dating, parenting, and whatever they throw her way. It's Not You, It's Them, But It Might Be You is out on Mondays, Wednesdays, and Fridays. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. So into that mix arrives this person. Well, I think that this person had hunted me down. Like I always say, you don't wake up and say, oh, I really want to find an abuser as my boyfriend. They find you and they're very smart and they find you at the right time and they say the right things and they do the right things and you are swept off your feet and before you know it, you're married and you haven't spoken to your mum in a while and you don't know where your credit card is and, oh, but you're at work because you're the only person that's earning the money. That process that you describe was very gradual, wasn't it? Yeah, I mean, you, you, they don't, like, outwardly abuse you, obviously, in the first couple of days, months, weeks. But what they do is they emotionally mould you. So it'll be like, oh, your friend's got a nice dress on. I love that colour. I bet that colour will look really good on you. So then he buys you a dress in that colour. You think, oh, that's really nice. And then... It, Another dress and then another suggestion. Why don't you wear that? And then a little bit down the line, it's like, oh, I've put your clothes out for you to wear. And you think, oh, that's kind. Actually, they're really just completely controlling you. And then you're in this thing of, oh, well, I know he likes that. But you know it doesn't feel right. Like if somebody genuinely was saying, this looks great on you, wow. But it's always done with an abuse tone that's how you know it's abuse because he's already point out pointed out some other girls so now you feel insecure and if you didn't before you do over time so then starts trapping you on every single level and it's not it's not overnight it's really gradual and really subtle and that's why when Louise who um, wrote the book with me she put the 15 signs of abuse in the back of my book and 
before I even knew what that was. She went, have, have a read of that. And by this point, I was like, I don't want to talk about abuse anymore because it, it's, it's so draining and I, I didn't know how abused I had been for a start. So I look at these 15 um, signs and I go, well, yeah, that's a timeline of my marriage, obviously. And she was like, no, this is the signs from Women's Aid that you know if you're being abused. And I was like, I tick every single one of them. And I've asked you to come out and write this book. I knew it was going to be a little bit dark and I didn't know I didn't know it was going to be that honest and that, because I didn't know how much I'd been abused. And Louise, Louise actually ended up doing a bunch of research on domestic violence, doing a bunch of research on abuse. She, she then ha had to go and interview 15 of my friends, work friends, whether it be from Simon Cowell's assistant or accountant to actually piece my life back together. And then Louise would say to me, so so-and-so said this about you because they saw that. I'd go, no, they didn't. And then I'd go, yeah, that, that happened. And actually it happened like that, but there was a bit more of even worseness on top of it. So by the time the book started to really form a shape, I was like, I am, I've been really badly abused on every single level. And if that can happen to me, it can happen to anyone. It can happen to, to my kids. We need to do something about this. And she was like, yeah, that's why you told me to write the book. And, I, and then it was like, well, I actually, I, I don't know if I want that book to come out. Yeah. And then Phoenix had wrote her chapter and I didn't realise what she had seen, you know, being in the same house, what she'd heard and what she'd seen. I was in shock. And she put it in her own words. She wasn't lying. It's my daughter. And I was like, this is all a real story, but do I really want to put it all out there like that? And between Louise and my daughter, they were like, well, you've got to because you could be helping other people. I was like, well, that is going to give me the strength because I'm all about helping other people because I don't want anyone to go through this, ever. I mean, you are the embodiment of girl power in that respect because power isn't about not being vulnerable. Power is about having the bravery to share your vulnerability, knowing that that truth will reach someone in a desperate situation and make them feel stronger. Yeah. That's power. Yeah. And that's what you've done. Well, I think if I would have had a book like that sitting on my table during that 10-year marriage, I would, would have took that book and ran for the fucking hills mm. because at least somebody is describing what I'm going through. When you say that you didn't recognise some of it at first or that you'd blocked it out. Yeah. Is that a kind of mental trapdoor of, of protection or was there something else going on there as well that made it difficult well, I to I think it's a lot to? of things. I think you disassociate it yourself, but I didn't want to really admit that because if, if I really admit that, then who am I? Why have I, what have I done? It's my fault and no, no one's going to believe me, but that's the mindset that you have. But when so many other people around you have seen stuff and they're shouting about it, finally, because they know that I've divorced that monster, then I can't deny that because I don't want anybody else to feel like that. Yeah. How do you deal now with the fact that your youngest daughter has a relationship with her dad, who is this person who did all of these things to you that you've yeah. spoken really honestly about? How does that well, I think when she's with me, I get to spend amazing time with her. And this is why I'm redoing the court system, because it's very easy for an abuser to say, well, she's crazy. I should have the kid. And the judge goes, oh, yeah, OK, I'm going to believe you. What? Why would you ever tear 
a daughter away from the mother just because I've dropped the domestic violence charge because I've only got X amount of years to do it in America. I'm not strong enough to do that right now. I'm strong enough to do it now. That would be part four of my book. <laughs> we'll see about that. So you just, you're exhausted. So the fight that you have in you is the is the honest one to, to go, my daughter shouldn't be there. But you're fighting a whole court system. You're fighting an unsupported court system. And I'm fighting it in America, not even here. So I just have to pray a lot. And I have to think as long as, long as when my daughter's with me, she understands unconditional love. And she understands the right from wrong. And we say a prayer before dinner. And she has manners. And she has respect. And she knows what a healthy relationship looks like. Because she sees me and Rory. And do you not talk about her dad with her? No, I think, how, no, how I'm very it? open. I, I won't bring his name up, but if she yeah. would say, oh, daddy did this, I'd go, oh, that's nice. So they still really don't ever leave. God, it must be so but hard. But you can distance yourself and know, right, you're not going to make me think I'm going mad again. I know what a healthy relationship looks like, thankfully. And even if I didn't have that great healthy relationship, because I'm away from his immediate abuse... I can have time to breathe and I've got my family and I've got my friends around me. And you've told the truth. I think that's exactly. the that's the most... And if it wasn't the truth, he could have sued me six ways to Sunday and he hasn't. Did the Spice Girls reach out to you during this time? Like, ha yeah. Ha yeah. I think I did put it in the book. There was one point I was crying, I think it was in the shower or the bath and Jerry came to give me a hug and we just got into a terrible fight. But I made sure that all the doors were closed because we had connecting um, hotel rooms when we were on tour back then, then, then. And um, even if I had the know-how to say to her, I've just been beaten up or whatever or violently cursed at in my face, I don't think I would have had the strength to tell her. But they knew something was wrong, but they didn't know because, don't forget, he was very much in control of me then, so... Even if they would have said something, how would I how would I have reacted? I would have protected him all day yes. long. Hence every single tweet and Instagram was, Oh my husband, I love him so much. Look what he's done. It was a complete lie. And that's why when I sat back on the desk, having done seven years of America's Got Talent, I sat back on the desk last year in November and Simon was like, God, you are so happy. I was like, I know because I'm not living a lie anymore. I know exactly what I'm going home to. Now it's not my mum's house. Now it's my new house, <laughs> finally. And I'm free of that constant day in, day out. Now it's done in a different way. But I'm not going home to the, am I going to live through this night? Everyone who loves you must have been so relieved when you left. Yeah. Yeah. And then it's almost a thing of, why didn't you tell me? They're like, well, we couldn't. We wouldn't, really. you wouldn't we have did listened. Try a little mm. bit, and like I, I was very angry at my mother for for the longest time because I felt like she knew I was being abused, or as a mum, she should have known. And why didn't she come and get me? But yet, don't forget when you when you're part of abuse, so is your family because they're being abused by that person also, and so are your friends. So it's not just you you that ends up being abused it's everybody around you that ends up being abused and then they end up being isolated from you it's impossible for them to come to your rescue your book brutally honest opens with a scene that i think so many of us will remember because i know i watched it at the time of you appearing on x factor oh yeah after you had gone through another cycle of abuse and you had overdosed and you got yourself 
out of that hospital, you discharged yourself against the advice of doctors mm-hmm. and you put makeup on the bruises and you I tried to. And you appeared on stage and it was a very arresting image and and you did it with power and intent behind it because you weren't wearing your wedding ring. And I made sure I went like that. Yes, but I still remember that. And way before I knew that I was going to be lucky enough to interview you, years and years ago, before this podcast even started, I rem- I still remember that image and I find it really upsetting yeah. and also really um, meaningful. And yeah. I wonder whether you have ever watched it back. No, I've seen pictures of it because I'd left him at that point and that was a fuck you, I really have left you because I've got no ring on and I've taken the drips out of my arm and you're not stopping me from working because my work is my safe my safe place. And then shortly after that, I went back. So that is a very, like, twisted, like, ugh, because I was so close to leaving yet again, so close. And yet I went back because my kids and... He was already making out as though I was absolutely crazy. And I believed him that the story that he was going to roll out on me was going to ruin my career. So I wanted to save my kids, save my work. And I went back and I dealt with it for another few more years. But that was the first time because I've been out of ear range and I wasn't answering my phone because obviously because I was on in hospital I made sure that I had a police guy and security guy at my door because I thought he's going to come into the hospital and he's going to kill me which is crazy when you think about it because it's a hospital and you've got security and they know why you're there and Randy was the one that took me to the hospital because I passed out in the car and I just thought nobody's going to stop me from working and nobody is going to tell me where I have to be I don't want to be with you and I'm going to make sure my wedding rings off and I'm going to make sure because I knew when the doors opened they would always do a close up shot and I would usually do like a woo and I was like that fuck you in my brain but terrified and very weak because I just pulled all stuff from me and I was still bruised and my one of my ribs was brought it was a, it was a lot and I thought no I'm good I can remember sitting there and Cheryl was going to me are you okay you've gone drip white because I couldn't breathe I couldn't really talk but I was like no one's gonna stop me and then I think I collapsed after that and went back into the hospital and then went back to him it took you another few years but you made it out in the end yeah and I'm I wouldn't say I hate using the word luck because I don't really believe lucky I'm lucky to look at this no it I, I don't know if it was my dad or the universe strength but I, I got out and not many people get out or they get out and they're still so badly scarred that they can't even move on or breathe. That's why it's so imperative we have support. It's so imperative that we understand and we can have empathy and and help because it's an epidemic. You know, we all know somebody. If you haven't gone through it yourself, you definitely know somebody that's gone through it or that's going through it. So if, if, the, if the statistics are that bad and that, terrible and they're not going to get any better unless we do something about it we have to stand up and do something about it i've got two final questions one is you have been so beautifully honest about your failures what do you think your failures have taught you oh my god where do you begin it's taught me number one just to really rely on that 
gut instinct. If something doesn't feel quite right, don't override it with it's going to be okay. Because that gut instinct is there for a reason. Because I do always believe that you are going to be okay, but my are going to be okay was riddled with the ugh. And every time that I've not been okay, it's because I haven't listened to that. When I it's, it's never let me down. It's always been there. I've just chosen to ignore it and hope for the best. My final question, Melanie Brown, scary spice, living legend, is about your dad. Yeah. I know that he is still such a strong presence with you. And a, a very moving moment in the book comes when he writes you a letter in 1995, just before the Spice Girls become huge. Yeah. And it's about the power of making mistakes if you learn from them. I wonder... And never forget where you come from. You used to always say that to yeah. me. I go, I know where I come from. I'm from Leeds. <laughs> well, actually, I wanted to ask what you think he would say to you now, right now, if he were here at this table, oh, having listened God. to this conversation. and I think he'd be really overwhelmed with emotions. He would because I haven't stopped. Oh God! Because wow. I haven't stopped and I've always just carried on. Like I think he would just be—he'd be really mad. <laughs> <laughs> like I told you not to marry that person, but I think he'd be really happy. Yeah. Do you think he'd be proud of you? God, I've never cried and cried in a long time. Sorry, I'm bugger. <laughs> I'm sorry. I have this effect. I think he'd be oh, happy, and I did go to his grave when I got. Properly out of that, I think he'd be a bit mad, but he'd be really happy. And he'd be so happy about Rory because Rory was his favourite. <laughs> so he knew Rory, presumably, yes. because of the... Okay. Yeah. Oh, that's wonderful that he got to meet Rory. Yeah. That's a really beautiful thing. You were a very pretty crier. I'm not. You should do it more often. <laughs> you are. I'm not. I'm going to look back on this and go, oh, Fuck. But hey ho, it's me. <laughs> it's you yeah. showing up as yourself, which is all that anyone can ever ask. Can't believe you made me cry. No, it's I'm good sorry. to cry. I do it's I so say good. this to Rory all the time. Because I haven't seen Rory cry in a while and I go, but it's good to cry. And now he's gonna be saying that to me when I get out yeah, of here. I cry all the time. I'm very proud. No, I do, I'm a crier, but yeah. a secret crier. Oh bless these you. These days. But that for me is such a beautiful thing. Like thank you for trusting me with your oh, story. No, I do. I would have walked out a long time ago because now I'm I'm very much I live by if something doesn't feel right I'm gone me too thank you and I try and be nice but I would have gone now I feel very comfortable and very trusting with you I've loved talking to you thank you for everything that you do now you owe me a massive vodka <laughs> 100% I also love that you drink vodka me too wait you have to stay there because you're okay. going to you're going to stay with us for failing with friends okay alright Mel B thank you so much for coming on How to Fail Just a quick reminder that we continue the conversation with Melanie Brown over at Failing With Friends. It's a wonderful community of subscribers where we chat through your failures and questions. So I went through a massive tequila phase and I still Me love too. tequila. Me oh. 1942, I was obsessed with that. Incredible. And it's because like I clean liquor. Because I understand why it didn't give you a hangover. That's why I got into it. it. <laughs> That's why I got into it. This works. I'm fine in the morning. <laughs> Just a quick reminder that we continue the conversation with Melanie Brown over at Failing With Friends. It's a wonderful community of subscribers where we chat through your failures and questions. Get Failing With Friends episodes every week and all How To Fail episodes ad-free. Just visit the How To Fail show page on Apple Podcasts and click Start Free at the top of the page to begin your free trial. Or you can visit failingwithfriends.com if you're not an Apple user. Thank you.